We turn one more time to Genesis 3. This will be the last sermon out of Genesis 3. I don't intend to preach specific sermon on the last several verses of the chapter, but I have already and will incorporate some of that into the sermons I've preached. The text today will be verses 14 through 19. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And now this is where our text begins for today, verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, until thou return unto the dust, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. 
And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Focus our attention on verses 14 through 19. Beloved, the words of our text came right out of the mouth of God. Now, we know that all of the words in the Scripture came out of the mouth of God. All of the words of the Scripture are the words of God, inspired, infallible. But there are certain words in the Scripture that came out of the mouth of God originally in a way that could be heard by his people. He spoke to them out loud, just like I'm speaking out loud to you right now. Adam, Eve, and the serpent heard with their ears the words spoken by God in our text. And God would have us to know that. God would have us to know that he spoke these words out loud to them, And so he inspired Moses to write down this record here in our text. And the reason is that the words he spoke were very significant words in the history of the world. He spoke these words at a very significant time and in a very significant place. He spoke these words in the Garden of Eden, in the beginning of history after the fall of man into sin and before the rest of history unfolded. What God says to them and to us in the text contains vitally important truths, and he would have us to know them at the dawn of time. On the one hand, God would have us to know how serious he is about sin, There are many today who say they are Christians who do not think that God takes sin very seriously. They think that God, as it were, turns a blind eye to sin. He overlooks it. He minimizes it, just like they do. God is just like us. He is not really all that concerned when people sin. But what God would have us to know from the very beginning of time is that, oh no, that's not true. God takes sin very seriously. That's why God is shown in the text pursuing Adam and Eve in the garden. Where are you? Where are you? God did not let them sin and get away with it. God sought them. God sought them. And we find in this passage that God confronts the sinners. All of the sinners, all of the guilty parties, God confronts them. He exposes their sin. The unique sin of each one of them, he exposes it, and he indicates he's going to punish each of them accordingly. God is a just God. God deals with sin. 
But on the other hand, God would have us to know that he is also a merciful and gracious God. By that very same act of pursuing Adam and Eve, where art thou? God is revealing his mercy. He was seeking them in his love to save them from their sins who had gone lost. And then even when Adam and Eve stand before Jehovah God and make excuses for their sins and blame others for their sins, God doesn't immediately strike them dead as he would have had every right to do. But he deals with them in mercy and compassion. And then he does the most amazing thing of all. Here in our text, God, at the very dawn of time, preached for the very first time the gospel to sinners. He spoke the hopeful promise of salvation in the Messiah. And he spoke that promise of salvation before he spoke those words of judgment and punishment on the woman and on the man. I want you to notice that this afternoon. Before he spoke those words of judgment on the woman and on the man, he spoke the promise of salvation. And we must therefore understand the curses in the light of the gospel that he first preached to them. The Christian church from the earliest of times has understood this text. I mean the Christian church, the New Testament church. You can go back to the early church fathers and you can find in their writings that they already understood this is the first revelation of the gospel in scripture. This is what has come to be called in reformed circles the mother promise. In Dutch, the Mutter Belofte, as our Reformed fathers loved to call it, and some of you know very well. This is the mother promise because this promise is the mother of all other promises of salvation that come after it in the scriptures, and there are many of them. As you read through Genesis and you read through the whole Old Testament, again and again and again you find God making promises of salvation. This is their mother. This was the first preaching of the gospel in history. So let's consider it. In the beginning, God speaks to fallen man. First, the mother promise. Secondly, the sorrow of the woman. And third, the toil of the man. In the first point, I'm looking at verses 14 and 15 and the words that God spoke to the serpent. Those words are to be considered part of the mother promise. Those words are the first revelation of the gospel and salvation of God to his people, even though he is speaking to the serpent. God says to the serpent, verse 14, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat. All the days of thy life. Now, one of the questions people have asked about this is Is God speaking only to the serpent or is he speaking to the devil? There have been some people who have thought that it can't be that God is speaking to the serpent because the serpent was just a beast of the field, it was not a rational, moral creature. It couldn't be that 
the snake actually was responsible and guilty for the sin of deceiving and tempting Eve to eat the fruit. And therefore they concluded that God is really only speaking to the devil here, the devil who used the serpent, and that the curse here is only on the devil, not on the serpent. And therefore the words of the text must be interpreted symbolically, they say, figuratively as referring to some curse on the, on the devil. But if you look at the text and read it, the natural reading of the text doesn't allow that. It's clear that God is speaking to the snake, but at the same time, he's speaking to the devil. He spoke to the devil and the serpent that the devil used. And that's simply the natural reading of the text God speaks to the snake, you are cursed above all cattle, among all the animals, all the beasts of the field. And the specific curse is one that's obviously fulfilled in that particular animal. Now we have to remember in that regard, God didn't just curse the serpent when man fell. God cursed all the animals. In fact, God cursed the whole creation because of the fall of man, even though the birds and the beasts and the fish, they were not responsible for the sin that man committed in the same sense that man was. And yet, God caused his curse to fall upon the whole creation because of the sin of man. In Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul points out that the whole creation groans and travails in pain and was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of the same who hath subjected the same in hope. God subjected the whole creation to the curse because of the sin of man. There we see the organic connection of all the creatures under Adam and Eve. And therefore, it was very appropriate for God to pronounce a specific curse on the serpent, was it not? Because although the serpent, the snake, did not actually tempt Eve, but the devil did, nevertheless, that was the animal that the devil used. That animal would come to symbolize the devil himself. And therefore, God cursed the serpent as a symbol also and prophecy of a curse on the devil. The curse that God spoke to the serpent was this, that you are cursed above all cattle and every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. God abased the serpent who had exalted himself. As Jesus teaches, everyone who exalts himself will be abased And everyone who abases himself will be exalted. The abasement of the serpent was that God amputated his legs, because he probably had legs before the fall. God cut them off, so that now this reptile, unlike other reptiles, would have to slither on its belly on the ground. And necessarily then, slithering on the ground, it would swallow a lot of dust as it moves about in the dust of the ground. That was the specific curse for the serpent. But that abasement of the serpent to slither on his belly for the rest of his days was an omen to the devil. 
And when the devil heard that curse, he understood in that curse a prophecy of his own doom. Just as God abased the serpent, he would abase the devil. And he would do that through the sending of the Messiah. God's own son would humble himself, would allow himself to be utterly humiliated and abased to the death of the cross and be exalted high above every name so that the devil, who exalted himself sinfully and proudly, wanting to be God, will be abased into the depths of the bottomless pit of hell and cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. The curse on the serpent was a portend, an omen, a prophecy of the ultimate doom of the serpent, of the devil. Now you can see right there already that this is part of the revelation of the gospel. That's the gospel to us. The devil is our enemy. The devil still tempts us. He still attacks us. He still tries to make our spiritual and emotional life utter misery. And this is the gospel. His doom is sealed. As the serpent slithers on its belly, the devil will be cast into hell. But the mother promise contains more that is of even greater joy for us. In verse 15, God goes on to say, still talking to the serpent, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Again, God is speaking to the devil and the serpent at the same time. When God said to the serpent, I will put enmity, or hatred, or hostility between you and the woman, We can understand that literally, first of all. And God did that. He put a certain hostility, a certain revulsion between snakes and the woman and her children after her, namely the human race. Now, you might have a certain revulsion toward any number of animals. And it's true that there are some human beings who curiously love snakes. But it's also generally true that most human beings have a revulsion for this creature. There's a hostility that God put there in the beginning. There's a fear. There's even a a hatred of the brood of the serpent, vipers and cobras and pythons and boa constrictors and all the various kinds of snakes that exist today. That enmity is between snakes on the one hand and the children of the woman, on the other hand, her mighty hunters, her, her farmers, her builders. And there is this hostility, this ages-long hostility between them. That's true. And as those serpents slither through the grass and the bush, biting the heels of men and women, injecting their poison, causing trouble, The man, in response, crushes the head of that serpent under its feet. But that's only a picture. Quite a striking and vivid picture of a spiritual reality. What God was doing spiritually here is putting enmity, spiritual hostility, between the devil and the woman. 
the offspring of the devil spiritually and the offspring of the woman spiritually. Obviously not physical offspring because the devil doesn't have any offspring in that sense. And it can't be physical offspring because it's not referring to all of the children of the woman. As we read later in the chapter, after this event, Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. She is your mother. She's my mother. She's the mother of all human beings who have ever existed. But God is not saying here that he is going to put enmity between the devil and all human beings but between the devil and his spiritual seed on one hand and the woman and her spiritual seed on the other hand. Now to understand that enmity, go back to what the devil was trying to do. What was he trying to do? He was trying to forge an alliance with the woman when he tempted her. He had fallen from from his glorious position and become the sworn adversary of God. Now he wanted to draw the man and the woman onto his side and forge an alliance with them over against God. That was what he was trying to do. But when God cursed the devil, he said to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put hatred, spiritual hatred, between you and my people. That's what God is doing. And when God puts hostility, warfare, spiritual opposition, an antithesis between light and darkness, good and evil, when God inaugurates the great battle of the ages right here in the text, we see there too an announcement of the gospel. Because when God puts enmity between us and the devil, he's establishing his covenant with us. He's saying, my people will be the sworn enemies of Satan, And they will be my friends. They won't be your friends, serpent. They will be my friends. I will establish my covenant with them. I will be their God and they will be my people forever and ever. And there's nothing you can do to prevent it. After all, God reveals his sovereign power in the text, doesn't he? God says, I will put this enmity there. Enmity is hatred, hostility. It seems from experience that hostility just arises among human beings. It arises in the midst of all the circumstances of life, hostility, hatred. But God says in the text, I will put it there. And that doesn't make God the author of sin. But it does mean that God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign, over good and evil, over the light and the darkness, over the love and the hatred. He's sovereign over the devil and the woman and all of their offspring. And that sovereign power of God to put that enmity there, to keep that enmity there, to maintain that enmity until the end of time when the beast rises out of the sea, the Antichrist, In Revelation 12 and 13, we read of the great red dragon, that old serpent, the devil, and Satan, and he will inspire a man in the last days 
the beast to rise up out of the sea. And God will keep that enmity there until that last day. And in that, God is carrying out his sovereign decree of predestination. Because before the foundation of the world, God already determined that all human beings would fall into sin and that he would not save certain human beings, but leave them in the darkness into which they plunged. But he would call other human beings into his marvelous light through the Messiah. He would save his people into his covenant. That eternal decree of God is behind the words of our text. And it was according to that decree, then, that God sovereignly put this enmity there between the light and the darkness, his people and the children of Satan. And that gives great comfort to the believer. The sovereignty of God always gives us comfort, doesn't it? The serpent, we do not feel sorry for the serpent because he's destined for hell. We do not feel sorry for the wicked who are his seed, who are his willing slaves and servants, because we know they're going to perish. We don't feel sorry for them because they are our enemies who hate us. They want to destroy us, and they have been trying it for thousands of years. But we hear this word of God and we find comfort. God is sovereign. God, our God, is in control over the light and the darkness. And even when the serpent and his brood assault us, abuse, oppress, persecute us, tempt us, we don't have to be afraid. God is our refuge and our strength, and he will be to the very end of time. The outcome of this battle and struggle is not uncertain. There is no dualism here between the devil and the woman, as if this battle will rage for thousands of years, and who knows about the outcome. God put the enmity there. God will keep it there until at last he removes it. The seed of the woman will be victorious. In this mother promise, God shows his amazing grace and mercy toward his people, toward the woman, the woman, who, like the man, had just tried to excuse her sin by blaming someone else. The totally depraved woman and the man, God had mercy to them when he said, Your seed, woman, your seed will bruise the head of this serpent, and he will bruise his heel. Now, once again, we can understand that literally, that snakes actually do bite and bruise the heels of people, and then people turn and retaliate on the snakes and crush their heads, But that is a vivid picture that points us to the spiritual reality. God fulfilled this promise throughout the Old Testament. The devil continued to behave like a snake, slithering down through the ages, creeping up on God's people, trying to bite them and to poison and destroy them. 
Just think of the days before the flood, when the world became more and more and more wicked. The seed of the serpent began to fill the whole earth, and there was only eight seed of the woman left, Noah and his family. It seemed that the serpent, like a cobra, had, was ready to pounce and make his final blow and destroy the seed of the, the woman. And God gave faith to Noah to build that ark. And building that ark over a hundred years, Noah and his family and the animals went into the ark. And God saved him through the waters of the flood and crushed the head of the ungodly seed of the serpent. God gave victory to his people. Or the children of Israel in Egypt, they had become slaves of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was commanding the soldiers to throw their babies into the Nile River and destroy them. They were under bitter bondage. And it seemed that the seed of the serpent again was going to be victorious. And God raised up Moses and gave him faith. And Moses, by faith, led the children of Israel out of Egypt, parted the waters of the Red Sea, and led them through on dry ground. And God destroyed the seed of the serpent, Pharaoh and his host, under the waters of the Red Sea. Joshua led God's people to the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan. And there were mighty giants in the land and walled cities. And it seemed that it would be impossible for the seed of the woman to be victorious over the seed of the serpent. But God made the walls of Jericho fall down. God made the sun to stand still. God gave victory to his people and gave them the land. Again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, the seed of the serpent raged against the seed of the woman. And when it seemed that he was about to succeed, his head was crushed. But all of that pointed forward to the New Testament. God fulfilled this promise ultimately when he sent his only begotten son into the world. The Lord Jesus Christ is the seed, the seed of the woman, the son of man, very God, but also very man, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the woman, not Eve, but the Virgin Mary, came into this world. He was the long-awaited, the long-promised Christ, the Messiah. And the devil tried to bite his heel. Like a slithering snake, he went after him. After his baptism in the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days, the devil struck and bit and tried to destroy him, tempting him three times, but he failed. Then the devil tried to deceive the Jews and others to kill him, to push him off the cliff in Nazareth, to catch him unawares and destroy him, until at last the devil seemed to succeed, and he beguiled the leaders of the Jews and the leaders of the Romans, Herod, Pontius Pilate. And they nailed him to the cross. And at that moment, the serpent shouted for joy and glee, thinking he had finally destroyed the seed of the woman and erased all possibility of salvation. But in that very moment, all he was doing was biting his heel. That's all. 
Because in that very moment when Satan sank his fangs into Christ, Christ was willingly laying down his life in the supreme act of love for his people. Satan did not and could not destroy him. Satan, when he tried, when he did all that he could, all that he could do was bite his heel. And as Satan bit the heel of Christ on the cross, Christ crushed his head under his bleeding feet and destroyed him and took away all of his power. And God raised him up from the dead. God fulfilled the promise that he made long ago. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 16, verse 20, to us Christians who believe in Jesus Christ, we now have this hope. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Romans 16, verse 20. We now live in the last days, and the serpent now rages. He is like a dragon, and he is filled with wrath because he knows he has failed, and he knows his time is short, and he wants to devour the church now more than ever. And one last time, he will raise up his filthy head, and he will inspire a beast to rise out of the sea, a man of sin, the Antichrist, who will rule over the world for a brief time. And then the devil once again will shout with glee and think, at last, at last, he has defeated God and established his kingdom. But then, Paul says, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet. When Christ comes again on the clouds, he will crush the serpent and the beast and cast them into the lake of fire once and for all. That's the promise of the gospel found in our text. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. The seed of the woman, Christ, shall bruise thy head and thou shalt only bruise his heel. It's in the light of that marvelous promise of salvation and hope that we have to understand the rest of the text. The rest of the text seems quite dismal, doesn't it? God now speaks words of curse on the woman and on the man. But we must understand that these words that God speaks now in which he pronounces curse and judgment, first of all, these are not, obviously, God's ultimate punishment for the sins of man. The ultimate punishment is death. What God goes on to say here is not, first of all, death, but temporal sufferings, afflictions in this life. And then, in the second place, we have to understand what God says here, He is not pouring these curses upon his people in his wrath. God has no wrath toward his people. Because of the death of the seed of the woman on the cross, vanquishing Satan, paying for all of our sins, taking all of God's wrath upon himself, there is no curse for us. There never was. 
There is a curse upon those who are not in Christ. These words are true curses of wrath and judgment upon the ungodly, which will culminate in the death of hell. But upon us, God's children, these are not curses of wrath. But they are afflictions that God sends upon us in this life to try our faith, to strengthen us, to direct our faith to him, and to purify us, that we might look to heaven as our ultimate hope. First of all, God spoke to the woman. I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. If the fall had not happened, which is hypothetical, of course, but if the fall had not happened, then Eve would have brought forth children in nothing but pure joy and bliss. She would have not suffered at all. There would have been no sorrow, no trouble, no tears, no pain, but only perfect joy in the bringing forth of children into the world. But when man fell into sin, God had this word for the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. When God says, I will greatly multiply, we could translate it this way, I will make it great. Because, as I said, there was no sorrow before the fall, and there would not have been. But now God is saying, there's going to be sorrow. And it's going to be great sorrow. There's going to be pain. And it's going to be great pain. I will make it great pain. Now there are some who interpret that phrase this way. That God is saying to Eve, I will make your sorrow great and I will make your conception great. So I will give you a lot of pain and I will cause you to conceive many, many children. I don't think that is the right interpretation. It's a possible interpretation. But it doesn't make sense to me. It seems to me that before the fall, Eve would have had many, many, many children and would have enjoyed having all of those children, because it would have been without any pain or sorrow. It seems the better translation or interpretation is, God is saying, I will make the sorrow of your conception great. Sometimes we can interpret the word and that way in the Bible. Thy sorrow and thy conception. That means the sorrow of your conception. I will make it great. God is talking here about the sorrows, the pain that goes along with the bearing and giving birth to children, an activity that is unique to the woman. It seems like the proper interpretation as well, because whether a woman has one child in her life, or two, or three, or ten, doesn't really matter. The point is that there will be sorrow, even if there's only one child. God will make great the sorrow of conception. The sorrow of conception includes all of the sorrows that are unique to the woman in bearing a child. Every woman experiences pregnancy differently, but there are different 
sorrows, different struggles and trials that go with pregnancy, as the women here know very well. There is the sorrow of sickness during pregnancy. There is discomfort. There's emotional struggle, physical struggle, mental struggles that go along with it. And then at the end of a nine-month pregnancy, there is the intense pain of the actual giving birth of a child into the world. God sent that to the woman in the beginning as a judgment because of the fall into sin. But that's not all. Not only the pain of pregnancy, the pain of giving birth to a child, but also the sorrows that come after giving birth to a child. Because every woman since Eve has given birth to sinful children and children who are prone to sickness, prone to disease, prone to all kinds of injuries, and ultimately prone to death. Mothers have to deal with children when they get sick in the night. Sometimes mothers lose children and become bereaved of them. There are sorrows that relate to having children. Mothers have a child, a son or a daughter, who is bullied at school. And what a sorrow that is to a mother. There are disappointments with regard to those children as we raise them. Sorrow after sorrow attends the giving birth and raising of children. Because of the sorrows, there are some women who try to avoid giving birth to children. They decide that they do not want to have this sorrow. They would rather be free to live however they please, to live a life of satisfaction for themselves, and not to have the quote-unquote burden of giving birth to a child and raising that child. So they prevent every conception that takes, might take place, and if a conception does take place, then they get an abortion to make sure that it doesn't continue. And they do whatever it takes to stop themselves from having a child because they don't want the sorrow of conception, the sorrow of pregnancy and giving birth and raising of a child. But God has put into the woman, I dare say into every woman, the instinct to be a mother. And when a woman makes the decision not to be a mother, not to have any children, but rather to live for herself and to seek herself throughout life, she's deliberately suppressing that motherly instinct that God has given to her. And by deliberately suppressing that, she's going to have sorrow in the end anyway, the sorrow of regret. So there are women who actually have children, and they have the sorrow of conception. There are women who choose not to have children, and they will have the sorrow of regret. And then there are children who are not able to have, uh, women who are not able to have children, and have the sorrow of barrenness. These are the sorrows of the woman. There's more. God said to her, And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. That second part of God's word to the woman might not sound like a curse. Isn't it good for a woman to desire her husband? Isn't it 
true that a husband rules over his wife? Well, it is true that God made the man first, and God made the woman out of the man to be a helper for him. The man is the head of his wife. He is called to lead her. That is true. That is God's divine institution of marriage. God has established the order of marriage in the beginning. Today, our society screams against that divine institution. And the screaming voices of our society, we hear those voices too. And sometimes they affect our thinking too. Today, our society is calling for the dismantling of what they call patriarchy. The fact that the man is the father who rules over his house, who is the leader in his house and the head of his wife. And there's an outcry for a new world order of egalitarianism in which men and women are on an equal standing in marriage, in the family, in home, in society, and in the church, and everywhere. There's an outcry from our society as well to dismantle the very distinction between man and woman. The text implies that there are such things as women and men. Nowadays, if you ask someone out in the world, what is a woman? As one man has recently done and made an entire film entitled, What is a Woman? Nobody is able to answer his question. Nobody dares to answer his question. Because there's a movement afoot today to dismantle the whole order that God established. It's true. God created the man first to be the head of the human race, the head of his wife, the head of his home. He created the woman out of the man to be a helper for him, to submit to him, to honor him and love him. What then did God pronounce at the fall when he said, your desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee? How was that then a judgment or a curse? It's a curse because now after the fall, the woman has this sorrow, that she will be ruled by a husband who is a sinner. She will not be ruled by a husband who is perfectly upright, a husband who is perfectly loving and kind and humble and selfless and righteous and a lover of truth. But she will be ruled, that is, she will be led. She will have as her head a husband who is a sinner. And she desires that husband. She starts to desire him when they are dating. She is attracted to him. She desires him. She likes him. She is drawn to him. And then they get married, and she continues to desire her husband. She desires him. She wants his love. She wants his protection. She wants his leadership. She wants him to provide for her. But that husband, whom she desires, will rule over her, and he's a sinner. The worst of husbands are abusive tyrants who consider their wives to be their slaves and who treat them like their slaves. Adulterous husbands who are not faithful to their wives. But even the best of husbands, even Christian husbands who have the seed of regeneration and the Holy Spirit sanctifying them, even the best of husbands are still selfish. They still get angry at times. 
They're still impatient at times. They're still critical at times. Even the best of husbands. This is the sorrow of the woman. She has desire for her husband and he rules over her. In the world today, just as women try to escape from the sorrow of conception by preventing all conception or having abortions when there is conception, today also women and men try to escape from this sorrow by divorce and remarriage. And they think that by simply divorcing their spouse, they can escape from that sorrow and they will find happiness in another marriage. But that is not the path of true joy. These are the sorrows of the woman. And as I said, we have to understand these things in light of the promise of salvation. This is not a curse upon you women. God does not curse you. God does not have wrath towards you. God loves you as your Father and your Savior. He has sent his Son to die for you on the cross. He has kept the promise to send the seed of the woman. God is a faithful husband to you. God loves you more than your husband does, more than he ever will, and more than he ever could. God is your faithful God and Father. And everything that God sends to you, the sorrow of conception, the difficulty of pregnancy, of childbirth, the pain of raising a child, all the troubles of that, he sends to you in his love. He sends to you because he cares about you, and he's working it all together for your good. You will be saved in the way of childbearing, Paul says. 1 Timothy 2, verse 15. Psalm 127, verse 3. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Proverbs 31, verse 28. Your children will rise up and call you blessed. God is with you. He has captured all of your tears in his bottle. He has them all counted, every one. And he will wipe them all away in heaven. After that, God turned his attention to Adam, the head of the human race, the head of his wife, who had also sinned. And he said to Adam, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, cursed is the ground. If Adam had not fallen into sin, then his work would have been a delight all the days of his life in the Garden of Eden. He would have dressed the garden, he would have tilled the ground, he would have planted seeds and watched them grow up without a drop of sweat ever falling down onto his brow. And he would have plucked the fruits of the garden and ate them and enjoyed fellowship with his wife and children in the garden all the days of his life, but he decided to, to sin. God says, because you listened to your wife, and disobeyed my command, the ground is cursed. I curse the ground because of you. Now God didn't just curse the ground, but he also cursed the sea and the rivers and the lakes and the mountains and the forests, and he cursed the sky, and he cursed the whole universe because of the sin of man. And that curse that God sent upon the creation 
caused the whole creation to become hostile to man in his attempts to work the ground and to make a living and to eat his bread. God said, there will be thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles, which will poke your hands and your legs and your arms as you are working the field, drawing blood, choking the crops in your field. But thorns and thistles really just symbolize all of the troubles that we men have to face in the work world. Thorns and thistles represent all of the weeds and the pests and the diseases and the droughts and the floods and the storms that make agriculture so difficult. They also represent all of the trials and difficulties, challenges, disappointments of any job that you men might have. It doesn't matter what job you choose, what career. Choose a career that you love. Choose a career that fits with your gifts. That's what we ought to do. And the curse that God put upon man in the beginning is that it doesn't matter. Even if you love your job, it's not going to be easy. It will be difficult. It will be toilsome. There will be sweat. There will be blood. There will be tears and disappointments and hardships. You might lose your job. You might be demoted. You might not have enough income to support your family. You'll have all kinds of hardships. And yet, you must keep on working. Working and working and working and working and tilling up the ground and tilling it up again and planting the seeds again and fighting against the floods and the droughts and the weeds and the thistles until the day that you die. And then you'll return to the dust because you came out of the dust and you'll return to the dust. That's what God had to say to the man. And I suppose that every man at some point in his life, ponders that reality. Whether he loves his job or hates it, he works and works and works, and he ponders the reality, at the end of all of this, I'm going to die, and they're going to bury me in the ground. I'm going to return to the dust, just like everyone else. Ecclesiastes 3, 19 and 20, Solomon, in reflection upon this, said, One thing befalleth men and beasts, As one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. But men, we have to understand those words in the light of the promise of salvation. That's the experience of life vanity. But there's more than that experience. There's the promise of the gospel, the promise of salvation, the promise that God would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And the fact that God has fulfilled this promise in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, shed his blood. We think that we work hard in our jobs, We think that we sweat and we bleed and we suffer. But Christ, he bled his lifeblood for you. He sweat bloody drops in the Garden of Gethsemane for you. And under his bleeding feet, he crushed the head of the serpent for you. Men, God 
loves his daughters no more or no less than he loves you. God is your father. He loves you so much that he turns all of these sorrows and struggles and sufferings and disappointments to your profit. He works them all together for your good. All of it serves your good. Knowing then that in this world of tears and struggles, we serve a victorious Savior. Ephesians, 5, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 both call us men to work with our hands diligently and faithfully serving our masters, our employers, our bosses, but ultimately serving the Lord Christ. In all the work that we do, we serve him, and God will bless us in our labors. And yes, when it's all done, we will return to the dust. But we don't have to be afraid of that. That thought ought not to give us fear or despair or the feeling of vanity. Because as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. That is, all who belong to Christ. Because just as Adam would return to the dust and we return to the dust, Christ, he did not return to the dust. But having died on the cross and being buried, he arose from the dead, the firstfruits of them that slept. We have no fear in death because Jesus lives. He is victorious. He will cause our bodies to rise from the dead as well. So as the Apostle says at the end of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, let us abound and let us be busy in all of our labors, knowing that our labors are not in vain in the Lord. As mothers, go forward raising your children, giving birth to children, all of the sorrows of that, knowing it's not in vain. God loves you, gave his son, and he makes it all worthwhile. And men, in all of our work, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Amen. Father, we thank thee for thy word of promise, a word of encouragement. In all of the sorrows we have as women and mothers and wives, the sorrows we have as men, fathers, Pray that thou would strengthen us to look to that promise of the gospel, to fasten our eyes upon the seed of the woman whom thou hast sent and who has won the victory through his death and resurrection. May we look to Jesus this coming week as we go to work and work in the home as well, and may we find in him that all of our labors are not in